this topic is the topic of the moment and it's growing and it's only going to become more. It's coming up in exams more and more. Sustainability, the environment, global issues. These are things that students who want to pass exams, your students need it. I mean, you know, you go to places and you run off handouts for a conference. There's 700 people there, a five-page handout, and you can hear the trees coming down in Finland. Our understanding towards our nature, I think, is getting less. When we know less, I think we care less. We learn English and how to protect the nature. The British Council presents the Climate Connection. La connexion climatique. Die Klimaconnectivität. La connexion climatica. Climate action in language education. This is episode three: language recycling. Hello and welcome to The Climate Connection, a British Council podcast focusing on climate action in language education. I'm your host, Chris Souton. This is episode three, Language Recycling, in which we explore what teaching and learning methods can effectively address the climate crisis. To start us on our journey, our first interview this week is with one of the ELT sector's most highly respected pedagogical experts, Scott Thornbury. Our first guest this week is Scott Thornbury, a name which may be familiar to many listeners. Scott has written multiple award-winning books for teachers on language and methodology, including the A to Z of ELT and 30 language teaching methods, and he's the series editor of the Cambridge Handbook for Teachers. He joins us from Spain, where he has lived for over 30 years. Scott, thanks very much for joining us today. My pleasure, Chris. So, Scott, I'd like to begin by asking you about Dogbeat ELT, which you developed along with Luke Meddings, the materials light approach to language learning, which doesn't require textbooks and indeed doesn't necessarily even require the traditional physical components of a classroom, such as desks or benches. So could we therefore say that Dogme is one of the greenest and most environmentally friendly language teaching methods available? We saw this overabundance of resources as working against the kind of activities or interactions that we thought, and based on the principles of the communicative approach, one of the inspirations behind the Dogma Unplugged movement initially was the story of this teacher in Papua New Guinea. He was an Australian volunteer who went to teach in a village, to teach the whole curriculum to kids through English in a village, We're talking about in the 1960s. So he probably didn't have a great deal of resources, but anyway, he lost a lot. And so he had to improvise in the village with the kids by taking them outdoors, walking around the fields, doing the math by calculating how many rows of corn, et cetera, et cetera, and no print materials whatsoever. And this notion of the kind of emergent curriculum or the contextualized curriculum that didn't rely on imported materials from an educational perspective, but, but of course, from an environmental perspective, because there was no drain on the resources whatsoever. And um, stories like that had sort of inspired me. When you kind of roll it back, the whole dogma thing, you say, yeah, it's been very consistently 
green, if you like. How do you see it in the say modern world where many people are teaching in classrooms which are more heavily resourced, approaches like dogma or resources which are, are low resourced um, are actually seen as somehow second rate? How can we change that narrative in order to improve both the pedagogy but also the environmental aspects of uh, teaching in those situations? To learn a language, really, you don't actually need a lot. And I think the question as to whether we should use print textbooks or digital textbooks is an environmental one as much as anything else. When you think of the wastage that the publishing industry comprises about 11% of fresh water consumed in industrial nations, I mean, that's an extraordinary amount of paper and water. Now, of course, this is not course books, but course books are pretty sophisticated productions. I think they're not that ecological. And there's a sort of idea that they've got to look smart and glossy and be heavy and so on. And you say, well, okay, we'll replace those with digital textbooks. But that also has an environmental cost. Just the production of an iPad and the amount of water that goes into one is absolutely massive. Of course, an iPad can be used for lots of other purposes, which is not the case with a, for a course book. And I do think, I mean, I do believe sincerely there has been a sea change in thinking and it's coming through from the, the younger generation and people are being much more critical of all this kind of unfriendly resources that have being imported into classrooms. I mean, people need, I think that problem is in training level too, teacher training. Teacher trainers need to take some responsibility for setting an example. And I've not been good at this myself. I mean, you know, you go to places and you run off handouts for a conference plenary session. There's 700 people there, a five-page handout, and you can hear the trees coming down in Finland. But it's changing that mindset, isn't it? Certainly when just the expectation that you come armed with this stuff. Yeah. I know. I've had... I've had arguments with, I mean, in Poland, I think I was doing some teach training work and they wanted the handout to be sent in advance so they could print it off. And I said, I don't do handouts anymore. I have a website where I'll upload a PDF of the PowerPoint and people can download it if they want. And they said, no, 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 no. In Poland, we have this tradition that you always have to have paper handouts at a talk. it's not real unless it's sort of somehow printed if it's not tangible you know and it's uh yeah but i think it's it's interesting as well kind of thinking about the say the the sort of tefl industrial complex and how that changes you know how how that mindset changes and i think Mm. there are small things that can come from bottom up but i think it has it feels like got to be like the big publishers and government ministries as well making Mm -hmm. those changes to textbook provision uh, as it were and shifting what it means to acquire a language, but I guess that's a sort of an ongoing conversation. And there are alternatives. I mean, there have been initiatives in language teaching methodology, I mean, going back hundreds of years where people have developed methods of teaching languages which relied on minimal materials, like one book. I mean, there's that famous case of this French pedagogue called Jacoteau who developed this method which was based on and he didn't speak Flemish but he had a bilingual novel with in Flemish and French and that was the course they just worked their way through it sentence by sentence you couldn't imagine a more eco-friendly course than that one book in a way what you're saying is and what dogma was trying to do and some of these other methods is to almost rewild language learning we're trying to get back to the heart of what language learning should be because often what we see is the structure of it all it's, it is the books it is the nice classrooms it is the mm-hmm. tech and all those sorts of things but actually we should be placing language learning at the heart of the process exactly we're placing the 
language learning environment or context at the heart of the process. And when you say rewilding, I'm reminded of the initiative that a number of Scandinavian language learning in the wild project where people go out into the street with particular tasks. I mean, this is learning a language like Icelandic or Finnish or whatever. And they, they're prepared for these tasks. They go out, they do the task. They take photos on their phones of, of the core interactions they're having with people in the wild, as it were, and they bring these back to the classroom. And this is essentially the material of the course, but it's very contextualized and it's very interactive. Uh, and that's where, of course, the internet comes in with there's a, a lot of affordances available there. Uh, but don't need that all the paraphernalia of those educational materials that are produced you don't need all that necessary to learn a language. I'm not suggesting that's the only way to learn a language, through immersion, for example. But the fact that people can do it suggests that we should be thinking of methodologies which are more immersive, as it were, in their approach. Are there things which teachers can add to their classroom practice which, which do make them responsible and environmentally friendly? Yeah, well, I think classrooms and contexts which are under-resourced and how resourceful the teachers are in handling large groups of learners sitting in lines at desks with very you know with a blackboard and that's about it and and develop techniques of first of all well I mean you could say crowd control <laughs> techniques to a large set we're using a lot of lockstep through drilling etc and reading aloud and reciting and so on which is not you know I mean people have been learning languages like that for some considerable time, these are not very communicative. I think they can be combined with communicative activities with like pair work and group work with not too much risk of chaos. Uh, I think many teachers are afraid that if they open up the classroom to interactive kind of activities, that they won't be able to control it. But I mean, it can be done. And can I ask you as well, Scott, about how you perceive the ELT industry's green credentials and how things may have shifted I'm amazed a whole new generation of teachers seem to be as interested in dogma as it was, you know, when we first started talking about it 20 years ago, that young people are more echo-minded than ever and certainly more echo-minded than their older generation. So that's very, very encouraging. And I have to say, I mean, in the light of the pandemic, my own carbon footprint has shrunk to kind of toenail size, simply because I'm not going around the world on planes telling people to teach dogma using low resource. You know, that was, that was, a, that was talk about hypocrisy. Uh, but, so I've been doing an enormous amount of stuff online and these same courses about dogma and with much, much lower cost to the environment. That's something I think, I mean, you know, I think we've all learned what we can do and what we can't do and what we can get away with. And and maybe how uh, some of us were, I was, um, in the old days when it was all getting on planes and going all over the place. So you think the um, those sort of changes to the ELT industry are going to come sort of top down and bottom up? So it may be top down changes by publishers moving more of their products online. It may also be bottom up by uh, students putting pressure on their teachers to, you know, this is what we want. We are more interested in the environment than perhaps our teachers or so on are. So it needs a sort of a top down and bottom up approach, but also, I suppose, making the most of what we could call a, a COVID dividend. The other conversation is the kind of uh, the center versus periphery conversations, the idea that everything has to emanate from the 
Britain, North America, Australia kind of English speaking context. And that's only good if the materials come from that context and people don't trust their own expertise locally. I mean, this is another argument I've had constantly with people who are inviting me to fly out to places like Bangladesh to talk to their teachers about it. I say, I don't know anything about Bangladesh. I don't know what, don't even ask me. I'm sure you've got people out there who are much more expert than me. I mean, I'm having this actual conversation at the moment with people in India, a publishing company there who want me to do more and more stuff. And I said, I'm never, you know, I don't, I have no idea. And they said, no, no, no. what you have to say is she said it was actually quite interesting but she says agnostic methodologically what you say about methodology could be applied in any context which is interesting in itself and i think that's a testimony to the dogma kind of mentality that it is it does fit in global context but at the same time you know i mean i do it because i can do it online i don't have to get on planes any longer but i think that you've got local people out there who are just as good if not better much better because they know the context than some expert who's flown in from overseas. But that that mentality that we've got to have at our conference or whatever, this white Anglo-Saxon male uh, absolutely. Uh, expert, it's like, please get over it, you know, move on because it's just for all sorts of reasons. And I think the same mentality applies to the, the books, the publishing too. I mean, I guess we've been spoiled for so long and teachers will maybe, some teachers at least, institutions and students too will need to be persuaded that materials don't have to look quite as gorgeous and glossy and have to have so many add-ons and supplementary what's-its than we're, we're kind of used to. I'm not blaming the publishing industry. The publishing industry, anything you can add to a course book series that gives it a distinctive edge, of course, is going to make it more attractive to the market. But, you know, as I said before, there's maybe there is a has been a kind of sea change in thinking about people looking more suspiciously at things that are sort of shrink-wrapped and and, you know, with, you know, and the standard thing that the student's book and the workbook, but all this other kind of stuff, <laughs> plastic wrap, and it would, at the end of the term or the year, a lot of that stuff had never been open, you know, testing packs and CDs and DVDs and I don't know. So I think there has been a kind of rethinking that a lot of this is very wasteful. And maybe there will come a time when, when what publishers offer will be judged, not just on its educational viability, et cetera, and, but on its ecological worth. That their carbon footprint could actually be the, the sort of the market opportunity, what convinces someone to, to buy that particular product. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time today, Scott. That was really interesting insights into uh, the environment and English language teaching. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Many thanks to Scott for his time. You can find out more about his work and writing on ELT at his website, scottthornbury.com. My name is Flavia Bonadeo and I am a teacher educator in Santa Fe, Argentina. I specialize in the field of methodology and I usually teach lesson planning and material development, among other contents. What I have seen in the past 10 years is that young prospective teachers have become more and more committed to raising awareness about environmental issues. Environmental care has become a recurrent topic in their didactic projects and materials. And in addition to teaching English, they seek to develop responsible attitudes on their learners. So most of these projects lead to a final task that engages secondary school students in taking action. 
at least by sharing their views, suggestions, and requests in social media. If you're interested, you can see some of these projects in our blog, Teaching English in Santa Fe. I don't know what your experience of school was like, but meeting a golden, snub-nosed monkey was definitely not on my curriculum. However, as we discover in this episode's From the Field, at this school in rural China, that's exactly what students at the Voice in Nature English School in Yunnan province can expect. Hello, I'm Wang. I'm from a beautiful Lijiang. We have a beautiful mountain, beautiful river. Our team went to many places, uh, like Yunlong, Shangri-La. I'm Yan uh, Fangcun, and I'm from uh, Yunnan. I'm very glad to talk about our program here in Yunnan. And the Yunnan province is located in southwest of China. Lijiang is very, very beautiful, incredible place. It's very rich, both in nature and culture. And we have beautiful mountains, and we have beautiful Yangtze upper part of the Yangtze River valleys. We saw. Yunnan golden monkey in Tachan and fly a kite in Yunlong. We saw rainbow waterfall in Shangri-La and hiking in the Yilong Snow Mountain. We learn English and how to protect the nature. Most of the people move from countryside to the cities. We have less chance to go into the nature and have a very kind of a close connection with nature. Our understanding towards our nature, I think, is less. And our bond, our bond with nature is getting less. When we know less, I think we care less. Our programs, we try to inspire and support or to encourage more people to learn about nature, to understand the nature and its benefits and its connection with our human beings. So for the English class, the teaching curriculum, we try to integrate nature education curriculum into indoor classes. Meanwhile, we also try to integrate the English learning with the nature camps. So we take our students with both kids and parents into the nature. So our courses let the students to understand the nature, like some plants, animals, ecosystems, and the heritage. The students, they enjoy learning outdoor 
classes outdoor camps. So uh, and I think um, for most of the kids, most of the time they just either stay at home or stay in at schools. So when they have chance to go outside, you know, both the parents and the students, the kids, they are very excited. We take them to different places in Yunnan, so they really think our program is good for their people's growth, and they care about the environment, care about local people and the culture. We want to have more of a, this kind of cases, so not just learn about English, but really to care about the personal growth and to care about connection with. Other people and with nature, we support other people when we're doing the camps or when we're at the class, always help each other. So I think it's about interconnection with the world. We are like a family, cry together, happy together. Every student and the parents want to say thank you to nature and the nature English. I love nature. Yay! La connexion climatique. In our second interview this week, we hear from two more highly experienced English language educators, Kieran Donaghy and Kerry Jones, about their thoughts on how to green ELT pedagogy. Kieran Donaghy is an award-winning writer, international conference speaker and teacher trainer. One of his particular areas of interest and expertise is on the use of images and the visual in English language teaching. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Kieran. Thank you, Chris. And Kerry Jones is a highly experienced freelance teacher, trainer and materials writer. She is also one of the co-founders of ELT Footprint a group dedicated to sharing initiatives and projects about how the ELT community can be more environmentally responsible. Welcome to the podcast, Kerry. Thank you, Chris. Lovely to be here. Kerry, perhaps we could begin with you and asking you to outline how and why ELT Footprint came into being, what it does and what you and your colleagues hope to achieve through it. So ELT Footprint came to be in 2019 which was really kind of the year of the zeitgeist of the climate emergency i think there was a conference in barcelona in may 2019 the innovate conference and daniel barber spoke there and gave a plenary where he made a climate emergency declaration for elt and this kind of seemed to galvanize a lot of conversations that had been going on anyway but they were kind of dispersed across social media and as well as actually there face to face in the conference and so there was a suggestion how can we bring all of these people in these conversations together and at the time the thing that seemed to be the most natural was to use facebook as a space where people were already sharing and the whole idea was this thing of creating a space for conversation for sharing for support obviously all like-minded people involved in education in all kinds of different ways it wasn't as if we invented anything it was that the community came together to support each other i guess and then from there some projects have grown through the community right at the heart of it is teachers educators interested in the topic wanting 
to find out more ways to be able to actually do something, to take action, to feel like we're making a difference. I was just going to ask a little bit, say, community for uh, like-minded people. What do you think can be done to convince people who aren't like-minded? Okay, so first of all, we're not into proselytizing. We're into encouraging and supporting and motivating people who are already interested, as it were. We're not out there to convert people to our cause or anything, because I think that generally has a kind of drum-banging negativity to it. But there is that idea of, for many, many global issues, that teachers will say, that's not my role, that's not my place. I teach the language, I don't teach the issues, and a very valid standpoint could also be that my students aren't interested in this, and why should I? And my comeback on that usually is, well, if we want to take a really pragmatic line with this, this topic is the topic of the moment and it's growing and it's only going to become more the topic of the moment. And you look again really pragmatically at exams and it's a topic that's coming up in exams more and more. I just did a year ago a kind of a very, very quick survey through the main Cambridge Suite exams and found on almost every paper, a question which did have an environmental slant to it. So that sustainability, the environment, global issues, these are things that students who want to pass exams need to be able to talk about, to have the vocabulary, to be able to process a text. So even if you don't buy into the importance of it as an issue, your students need it. It's like it's language that they need to have so for me that's kind of like the bottom line salesman um, (laughs) pitch that I give lovely thank you Kerry Uh, and Kieran if I could come to you when we think about the global climate crisis we see the importance of the image and the visual within that why do you think it's so important and how do you see it being used within the field of ELT I would say the main reason for using the image in language education is that we're living in an increasingly visual world, that we're living in the age of the image, and that the majority of the texts that our students are encountering outside the classroom are visual texts like photographs or multimodal texts which use visuals, such as a website is an example of a multimodal text, videos, short films, memes, infographics. These are the types of texts our students are encountering. So we need to bring these into the language classrooms and use these texts to help students to analyse and interpret these texts. And a very interesting recent development has been the addition of the fifth skill of viewing in the English language curricula in a number of countries, including Canada, Singapore and Australia. This skill of viewing is an active process of analysing and interpreting visual texts such as T TV, programs, films, videos, paintings, infographics, symbols. And I think undoubtedly that this fifth skill of viewing will be added to English language curricula throughout the world. An example of one of these frameworks would be See, Think, Wonder, which is a visible thinking routine, which was developed at Harvard Graduate School by teacher researchers. And this is a very, very simple routine, which can be used with any image. And essentially, there are three questions that the teacher asks the students. So perhaps if we think of just one image, and probably an image which all of the listeners will know, so it's the image of a polar bear 
clinging on to an iceberg. And so we could say to the students, what do you see? And the students would say what they see. And they would say, I see a polar bear on, on an iceberg. And then the next question is, what do you think? And you say, well, I think this may be the result of climate change because, and the students give their answer. And they say, what do you wonder? I say, I wonder what's going to happen to the polar bear. Did the polar bear survive? Did the polar bear manage to get where it was going? Did the polar bear get any food? I wonder why we don't do more to try to counteract climate change. So this would just be a, one example of a very simple routine that we could use. And as I said, this can be applied in any context. The, the, second, the second thing I would say is that, that specifically referring to the climate crisis, I would say that a key component of climate crisis education is what has been termed environmental literacy. And so there's this need to teach concepts such as global warming, sustainable food, green jobs, carbon footprints, etc. And images are extremely useful in the language classroom to illustrate these concepts to our students and therefore developing our students' environmental literacy. Thank you, Kieran. And what kind of skills do you think teachers would need support with in order to do this effectively? There is a need for in initial teacher training and in-service teacher training for teachers to receive specific training in visual literacy and multimodality. I love all of those visual thinking routines, Kieran. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the choice of images I think mm -hmm. is vital as yeah. well is and maybe this is something as well that teachers but I think even more so published materials need to take a lot more care over and that I think we can learn a lot of lessons from journalism for example so um, The Guardian has published articles recently about how they approach images when talking about um, the climate emergency and the type of images that they find to be more effective. There is an organisation called Climate Visuals that has a free gallery of interesting images from around the world which are not what might be the stereotypical some of the underpinning principles for choosing images which really are going to get students thinking and responding and wondering are ones which have some kind of a human story involved, preferably some kind of a local link, which means that the context is familiar to the students or some kind of a surprise, something which makes them stop and rethink pre-COVID there were the horrible bushfires in Australia and there were lots of different choices of images that could be used to represent that situation and a lot of them were these big images of the bushfires which were somehow overwhelming. It was this enormous disaster and represented in such a way that there's nothing you can do about it so that the only reaction that they provoked was hopelessness. It was such an overwhelming feeling of despair that it wasn't something that you'd want to take into a classroom at all. And I saw a story on the BBC, which was just for me so touching and just the right way to go in, which was a little video of a clip telling homeowners in Australia how they could help the wildlife that were escaping from these fires. And they were tying fruit kebabs around the trees in their gardens and putting out big pots of water, but making sure there were stones in the pot so that if an animal accidentally fell into the water, they'd be able to climb back out again. And it's a tiny little 30 second 
clip, but it seemed to me to be this kind of glimmer of hope in this horrible story. And so that, for example, would be a really, in my mind, a really effective visual text to share mm -hmm. with the students. And this idea that doing is possible, that acting is possible, that even in such a terrible situation, you can do something. This is kind of an, an, another underpinning principle, I think, of dealing with any of the major global issues which can be daunting for teachers, scary to talk about, is to find a story. And I guess it's coming back to that word Kieran used, the, the idea of wonder from a language learning perspective. As soon as students are wondering about something and want to say something, they want the language. They are said, teacher, how do you say this? Yeah. And that's, that's what yeah. could make them use the language. It marries so well and so easily with developing critical thinking, for example. And that what we've found quite a few times coming up on the ELT footprint group, for example, are images being shared that are fake. And mm -hmm. um, what a yeah. wonderful lesson that can give yeah. uh, a teacher mm -hmm. is to take in the image and then get the students to say, you know, is this, is this a real image or is it fake? And if it's fake, mm -hmm. why and why did they do it? And then you have the lovely gift of a lesson as well. The visual thinking routines, the questions, the questioning things always. It, it marries with so many things. So the visual literacy, the eco-literacy, critical thinking, that they all come together in what would be actually a simple framework for a teacher to work with. As Kerry said, I think in course books, the selection of images is very important. There has been a recent tendency to use the same type of image or in fact the same image in in course books and it can obviously lose its impact when it becomes stereotypical or or cliched. I was just going to ask you and does it become one of those images that we just see and, and gloss over we don't really think about yeah, it because it's absolutely. such a, a familiar absolutely. part of our language. Yeah because it, we've seen it so much we don't really analyze it it's very superficial the way that we deal with it but where it perhaps if it's a new image or it's as Kerry said an image which tells an there's a narrative behind it there is a humor element there's something behind it that this would also be a way of developing what has been termed ecological empathy sort of empathy towards all living beings plants and the planet and one final question to both of you perhaps begin with you kieran it's just how do you feel the elt community as a whole is responding to the climate crisis uh, and are you optimistic about the future? I think that the ELT community is responding well. I think ELT Footprint is an excellent initiative which has caused a lot of positive change in the way that teachers are approaching the climate crisis. So I can see that in course books are incorporating units related to the climate crisis. So in general terms, I am optimistic uh, about this. Have you seen changes in your years of experience working in ELT about how the issue is treated? I would say I have before it was presented in some ways as if it was a hypothesis. Now it seems to be much more explicit. There's no real debate about it. It's very clear. I like the analogy with technology and the way the treatment of technology has changed in course books. So like mm -hmm. you're saying, you know, it used to be in the unit on the future and, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. flying cars and whatever, that would be technology. And then it started to be like in the past. We'll talk about technology in the past and then students can fill in what's happening in the present and 
then it just became pervasive. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't have a unit on technology anymore. Every single topic that's discussed, we include the media, we include technology. It's just, it's a given. And I think that if we can start moving towards sustainability actually being a given. So as you say, in the food unit, there is, is a discussion of food in general. And part of that is the question of the sustainability of food production. In the fashion unit, there's a discussion of clothes and fashion in general. And then as part of that, there's the idea of the sustainability of fashion and of, of fast fashion. And so that it actually is something which will become, it, it won't be a topic in its own right. It's just another aspect of life, which is there, whatever topic you're talking about. I don't think we're there yet. I think we're still there with the unit in the course book, which is called the environment. And all the students are, oh, we've done this to death. Why are we doing the environment units you again? finish the environment. We've done it. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they have this feeling that they're being told things. Yeah. They don't want to be told things anymore. As Kieran was saying with the visual thinking techniques, that students aren't being told things. They're not being informed. They're exploring. They're yeah. questioning. They're bringing their own experiences and their own judgments into play and that that's what textbooks should try to do in fact not transmit information but encourage the students to bring their own information into play as well yeah yeah fantastic kieran kerry thank you very much for your time no thank you chris thank, thank you, you. thanks to both kerry and kieran for their time Please visit eltfootprint.uk for more information about their work. I'm Jasna Polanovic, an English teacher from Zlatar High School in Croatia. We watched David Attenborough's film A Life on Our Planet and participated in panel organized by British Embassy in Zagreb, which tackled climate changes. Later students created online poster to warn local community about the deforestation of a local mountain. We shared the poster on social networking sites. We compared London's environmental strategy with Croatian capital Zagreb strategy and discussed what improvements could yet be done. As the global climate crisis has intensified, so too has the language used to describe it. Increasingly, in the media, we see phrases such as climate apocalypse and climate Armageddon. In this episode's Green Glossary, we hear from our partners at Oxford University Press about one such word, ecocide, and learn more about its origins and formation. The Green Glossary The Green Glossary Brought to you by Oxford University Press. I'm Tanya Stiles and I work on etymology at the Oxford English Dictionary, researching the origins of English words. As an etymologist, I find ecocide a really interesting word. Its basic construction is fairly straightforward. The familiar element eco, referring to the environment, is combined with the ending side, which we recognise from words like suicide and homicide. So, literally speaking, ecocide means the killing of the environment. Now, this already seems like quite an interesting choice to me because it presents the environment as a living organism and equates damage to death. 
But looking at the context in which the word was first used shows more clearly why someone might want to do this. The OED's earliest evidence for ecocide dates back to April 1969, when it appears in a local newspaper from Sandusky, Ohio in the United States. It's used in an article about the United Auto Workers Union, who are lobbying the state governor to put laws in place for controlling air pollution. The union rep claims that air pollution causes 5,000 deaths in the state every year, and his plea to the legislators is pretty powerful stuff. He says, at stake are the health and lives of thousands of citizens who are innocent victims of our careless indifference. He goes on to say that neglect of the pollution problem could be described as ecocide, crimes against humanity by destruction of the environment. Now, rebranding air pollution as ecocide in this context is a stroke of persuasive genius. In this one word, the idea of damage to the environment is wrapped together with the killing of thousands of innocent humans. It's not words like pesticide the speaker intends to bring to mind here, or even suicide. It's genocide. Suddenly, we're not dealing with an unfortunate and slightly dull side effect of the car industry. We're talking mass murder. And surely, no state governor is going to stand back and let that happen. The element eco is what we at the OED call a combining form. A linguistic element that combines with other elements to make new words. Because they're effectively building blocks for words, and not freestanding words in their own right, combining forms are a bit like prefixes and suffixes, collectively known as affixes. However, they differ in some important ways. An affix is usually added to an existing English word for one of two reasons, either to adjust its sense or to change its part of speech. So, for example, to the adjective kind, you might add the negative prefix un to change its meaning and make unkind. Or you might add the suffix li to it to make the adverb kindly. Semantically, affixes are very much secondary to the base word they're affixed to. In both unkind, kindly, and indeed unkindly, it's the adjective kind that carries most of the word's meaning, not the affix. But combining forms pack more of a semantic punch. When you put two of them together, like eco and side, each element contributes equally to the sense of the new word you've made. As combining forms go, eco is an extremely productive one. The OED covers almost 100 words formed from it, dating back to the early 20th century, and new combinations are appearing all the time. Many English combining forms are borrowed from Latin or Greek, Bio, in biodegradable, for instance, is from the Latin word for life. And anthropo, in anthropology, is from the ancient Greek word for man. However, this isn't the case for eco, at least not directly. It's a shortening of two closely related English words, the noun ecology and the derived adjective ecological. How do we know this? Well, a big clue is a fact that a significant number of eco-words have earlier equivalents contained in the adjective ecological. For instance, before the word eco-niche came into usage around 1958, the established term was ecological niche and had been since 1917. And the word eco-footprint doesn't turn up until 10 years after the fuller term ecological footprint had come into use. This indicates quite strongly that eco was formed by shortening or clipping the word ecological to make longer expressions like these easier to say and write. 
The English noun ecology was borrowed from German in the mid-1870s, and within a few years, ecological had been formed by adding an adjective suffix. The original German word, ökologie, was a relatively new one at the time. It had been coined just 10 years earlier by the scientist Ernst Haeckel as a name for the new branch of biology that had started to focus on the relationships between living things and their environments. Haeckel's word is made up of two elements, the ancient Greek word for house or dwelling, and the German equivalent of logi, which we know from the names of other branches of science like geology and biology. Etymologically speaking, ecology is the study of our home then, our home planet, you might say. So, at a deep level, eco-words like ecocide share an underlying metaphor with some later environmental themes, like Greta Thunberg's rallying cry, Our House is on Fire. The earliest English formations in eco date back to the early 1900s. They tend to be restricted to specialist scientific and technical registers. Some of the earliest eco-words are certainly terms I'd never come across myself until I started to do the research for this podcast. But the late 1960s was an important time in the history of the combining form eco, thanks to the rise of environmentalism as a political issue. During the 60s, as public awareness of environmental concerns grew, existing technical terminology in the area started to be used more widely, spreading from specialist scientific journals and out into newspapers, documentaries and general conversation. This is demonstrated quite nicely by the word ecosystem, which started life among research biologists in the 1930s, but has now become part of our everyday vocabulary. In fact, it's become common enough that you can describe any complex system of relationships as an ecosystem, like a business organisation or a sector of the economy. Alongside this popularisation of existing vocabulary, a large number of new eco-words were born at the end of the 1960s, and ecocide is part of this baby boom. From 1969 onwards, we see a real eco-explosion in English, giving us new words for environmental damage, like eco-catastrophe, eco-vandalism, and of course, ecocide, as well as words for environmental activism with eco-advocacy, eco-activist and eco-protest, green travel and tourism, which brings us eco-traveller, eco-camper and eco-lodge, and green products such as eco-bottle, eco-bulb and eco-house. And then, of course, in the wake of positive terms like eco-conscious, eco-savvy and eco-friendly, you get the inevitable backlash with negative words like eco-babble, eco-fascist and eco-nut. The popularity of eco-words isn't just restricted to English. The equivalent element is similarly productive in many European languages, not just in German, which we've talked about, but also in French, Spanish and Italian. This productivity can even be seen in the brand names of environmentally friendly cleaning products and the names of companies, and it shows no sign of slowing down anytime soon. New words in eco crop up all the time, and a few we have our own at the moment are eco-anxiety, eco-bling and eco-cred. As we continue to monitor the language for new arrivals, it looks as though eco-words will be keeping us busy at the dictionary for some time to come. The Climate Connection Thanks again to all our guests this week. For show notes, bonus material and previous episodes, please visit the show website www.britishcouncil.org slash climate hyphen connection. And join us next time for episode four, where there's a clill 
there's a way in which we'll be looking at how to achieve a good balance between environmental content and language in our teaching. Until then, goodbye. The Climate Connection. La connexion climatique. Die Klimakonnektivität. La connexion climatique. I'm Tanya Styles and I work on each et Work on trying to speak properly. <laughs> yeah, don't get the word etymology wrong. You'll never be able to uh, get back in the OED again. It's actually quite hard to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could come so, up with a new word. Say entomology. Exactly. Show me your butterfly. <laughs> the Climate Connection.